Well, if you're going to be saved, there has to be something to be saved from. And tonight, as we press on into chapter 13 of the Revelation, we're going to try to do the first ten verses here tonight as we press on in this overview. So I'm going to try to move quick. Um, i got to remind myself that. This is an overview and not an in-depth study at this point. As we press in, we see the results of the events of chapter 12. The war of enmity between Satan and God that's raged since before time memorial has finally spilled over into direct action and Michael is empowered by our God and him and his angels fight against the dragon and the dragon fights back and he is defeated and he is cast out of heaven. And contrary to what the dispensationalists would want you to believe, Satan is not happy about this. He's not sitting around just itching for the day of the coming of the Antichrist. Oh, he fantasizes about it, no doubt. But he's still trying to figure out how to change the times and the law because the reality is, is he has walked among the fiery stones. He has seen the throne of God face to face. And he knows exactly that which he is pitted against. And he believes that one day he can overcome it, but he just hasn't quite figured it out yet. And so... There is a warning. Woe to you who live on the earth, for the devil has come down to you in great anger because he knows that his time is short. It's real short. 1,260 days to be exact. And when he comes down, there is nowhere for him to go except for into the body of the now three-day dead Antichrist. And in chapter 3... 13, sorry, in verse 1, John writes and he says, I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head and the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth and to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? We see a beast rising out of the sea. We might be tempted to see this you know, kind of in the, the picture of our minds as being the Mediterranean Sea, but that would specifically be incorrect. We see in Scripture, like Isaiah chapter 57, verse 20, that the Gentile nations are seen as a tossed and wicked sea of humanity. It's written in Isaiah chapter 57 that the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet and its waters tossed up in the mire, but we don't have to speculate because when you get down the road into chapter 17 in Revelation 17 verse 15, John is told specifically what the sea is. The angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. What you see here is the culmination of lawlessness. And out of the tossed sea of rebellious humanity empowered by rebellious angel 
we see the rise of the beast. The beast is prescribed first before it is described. The reality of its nature and its existence. The beast that we see in Revelation chapter 13, and this is one of the reasons I think that it, I think it causes a lot of confusion for people when they get to this point in the Revelation and it's really not that hard of a thing once it kind of clicks for you and you go, oh yeah, that's the way it works. Part of the problem is, like we talked about this morning, is we live in a republic. And apart from the kingdom of God, we have basically no experience with what an actual kingdom is like. Even the the monarchs that, that still exist in this world today, there are no truly sovereign monarchs. Even when you look to, to, to the Eastern world and in, in the Middle East, places like Saudi Arabia, where you would think that you have the closest thing to a genuine monarchy that still exists, even then, it is not a true sovereign monarchy. Man, that thing is like a soap opera of family intrigue and, and influence. There are hundreds of them that are vying for the position within the family and they all affect the crown. You don't have David sitting on the throne going, here's how it's going to go. And that is what you have here. The beast is both a kingdom and a king. It's not one thing or the other. It's both. Because in a true monarchy, the king is the embodiment of the kingdom. And you better believe this will be the truest of monarchies that Satan can muster. Concerning the kingdom of men, in Daniel chapter 7, verse 23, it is written, Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth. This kingdom... As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it into pieces. We see that the beast, the fourth beast, is a kingdom among men. We also see it as a king of men. For in the same chapter, in Daniel 7, just up the page in verse 17, these four great beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth. So within the exact same context, I mean like literally like two different breaths, just back to back, Daniel tells us that these four beasts and the fourth one that we're focusing on here tonight are both kingdoms and their king. Matthew chapter 22, Jesus speaks about the kingdom of heaven and the nature of the relationship between the king and the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. The kingdom of heaven can be compared to the king. Under a true monarchy, the king and the kingdom can never be fully separated from each other because he is the embodiment of the government. Though both king and kingdom are in view here, it is clear that the focus is on the kingdom at large as we will see that it contains many lesser kings, political divisions, vassal states. The latter mentioned horns appear as the particular focus of the personhood and the power of these individual kings. I saw the beast, this kingdom and its king, rising out of the sea, out of the 
Gentile mass with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on his horns and blasphemous names on his head. He goes on to describe it. He says that the beast I saw was like a leopard and its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's. For students of the prophet Daniel, this will be familiar to you. These are aspects of all of the kingdoms that rose out of the earth before this one. Daniel chapter 7, verse 6, the prophet writes and says, After this I looked and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. In Daniel chapter 8, it says, The goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between its eyes is the first king, that being Alexander. As for the horn that was broken in the place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall rise from this nation, but not with its power. We see the aspects of Babylon and of Persia and of Greece all melded together into one beast that is different and yet so similar to all of the ones that came before it. In Revelation chapter 17, verse 9 through 10, we get the direct textual confirmation when it says, This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated, and they are also seven kings. Seven heads, seven mountains, seven kings. Seven political divisions all topped with ten horns with diadems. And it's a very fantastic picture. It's, it, it's one of those situations like the parable of the sower. If Christ didn't explain it, you'd never get it. But He does explain it. And the ten horns with their diadems, with their crowns, are ten very specific kings out of these seven political divisions. In Revelation chapter twelve or seventeen, verse twelve, the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. Not only are these specific kings but they are the last kings of the empire. They receive power, but for an hour. And at the very time of the end. Now that's the prescription, that's the nature, that's the existence of the beast. It is both a kingdom and its king. It is a kingdom that is a conglomeration. It's been cobbled together from all of these political entities that are all vying for power and all have important people that are doing important things. We shouldn't expect it to be any other way. It is Rome, which is exactly how Rome was built. I mean, Italy, just a little ink. The Roman Empire was headed by Italy and had a horn whose name was Caesar. The Roman Empire was nothing less than the kingdom of this world and the empire of men. 
so too will be the case for Rome 2.0. That's what it is. But then we see what it is like. We see this description that it is the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet like a bear's. Its mouth like a lion's mouth. We see the same anthropomorphisms as we see in Daniel's vision in chapter 7 in verses 1 through 6. Guys, we've been going through this. I've continued to remind you and I want to do so again tonight because I think it's, it's a point that's missed constantly and it causes lots of confusion. Man, you cannot understand Revelation without understanding Daniel. And the reason we know you can is because Jesus said it was that way. When the apostles asked Him in Matthew 24, Lord, how will we know what is the sign of Your coming and of the end of the age? He said, remember what was written by the prophet Daniel. We see the scroll in Daniel open. You read halfway through to the middle. God says, seal it up. The rest is for the time of the end. Here we are at the time of the end. And in chapter 5, we see John weeping and everyone weeping in heaven because no one can unseal the scroll and read its contents until the Lamb that was slain comes and unseals the scroll and here is the rest of the story. Well, if you're going to understand the second half, you've got to understand the first half. So here we have this beast and it is this fantastical thing that it kind of looks like a leopard and it's kind of like a bear and it's kind of like a lion. This isn't new information. In Daniel chapter 7 and verse 1 through 6, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in bed. And then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. And Daniel declared, I saw in my visions by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. And after this, I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, It had great iron teeth and it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it and it had, guess what? Ten horns. It's the same anthropomorphism that we see in Daniel. It's the the fourth beast is different because it's the combination of everything that came before it. The leopard's body If you study Daniel, it's Greece and the speed of conquest. The bear's feet, the Medo-Persian Empire, and the absolute unbridled violence that they bring upon the face of the earth. The lion's mouth is Babylon in all of its splendor and glory. What you see here is something that is more splendor than Babylon, more brutal than Persia, and faster than the Greeks. This is a beast like no other. I considered the horns, he said. And behold, there came up 
among them another horn, a little one. The word in the Hebrew here does not mean little in size. It means short in time. A little one. And that is, after all, why he is so angry. Because he knows his time is short. A little one before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Though we cannot speculate all the ways that this beast is different from those that came before it, one way is clear. It is not its own, but instead it's a conglomeration of the attributes of those kingdoms that came before it. It is literally the worst of the worst. It is lawlessness' greatest hits. And the source of this unholy power is nothing less than the dragon himself. To it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. Now, Satan claims the right to give his power and the power of this present darkness and the kingdom of this world to whomever he pleases. As a matter of fact, he makes this statement when he is tempting Christ and they are going back and forth. When it's him and the Son of God in the temptation, the longest narrative of the temptation out of the synoptics is in the Gospel of Luke. And one of the things you'll notice about the the back and forth, the exchange, the dialogue that occurs there is that when Satan will come at Christ with a lie and we will come at him to tempt him and to deceive him, it will always be, the majority of it will be true. What he tells him is is true except for the part that's not. And that's, that's kind of the point. And Christ does not suffer fallen angels lightly. And so he doesn't even give him credence for what is true he simply immediately addresses the lie and just allows the rest of it to stand and so in Luke chapter 4 in verses 5 through 7 it says the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and he said to him to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will if then you will worship me it will all be yours Jesus said it is written you shall worship the Lord thy God and doesn't address any of the rest of it including the statement that Satan makes that this place has been delivered to me it's in my possession and I get to do with it whatever I want and man that is a loaded statement folks and let me tell you something when it was delivered to Satan it was not delivered to him by Adam that's a different study all together. The question I think that's pertinent for tonight is why would Satan lend his authority to anyone else? And here you see. To it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. Why would Satan lend his authority to anyone else? Especially when we know that his driving desire is to replace a God who will give his glory to no other. I mean, in Isaiah chapter 48, verse 11, we could quote 50 different verses in the Old Testament that would confirm this. But, I mean, look, the Lord says, man, my glory is mine. My power is mine. I give it to no one else. I don't give my glory to you. I don't give my power to you. I keep it for myself. I use it to save you. 
I use you to glorify me, but I'll give my glory to no other. So if Satan is mimetic in nature and all he wants to do is mimic the things that God is doing because he's so unoriginal that he can't just be himself, he has to replace something else that already exists, then why in the world would he consider giving his power to something when the God that he so desperately wants to be would never give his power or glory? Because you can't separate the king from the kingdom. Oh, he'll give his power, he'll give his authority to the kingdom as long as he's the king. Looks like this. Chapter 13, verses 3 through 4. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound. And this is just a rough translation. So we're going we're gonna to try to do it some justice here in a second, the last seven minutes that we've got here tonight. One of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth... Mar- <clears throat> Apparently I'm 12. The whole earth... <clears throat> the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Okay. It seemed to have a mortal wound. The word is host. And it means, doesn't mean seem. It means as. When you read this, when you read this in the English, the, the thing you walk away with, it seems to be like, okay, you know, he, he took a wound that, that really should have killed him. Should have killed him. You know, is a nasty wound, but hey man, he made it. The only thing is, is when this wound is healed, it is just so over the top and so astonishing that it says that because of this, the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Now they're going to follow him directly into the Holy of Holies where he is about to sit down, according to Jesus in Matthew 24 and Daniel chapter 9, and declare himself to be God incarnate. Now look, there's some pretty nasty wounds that ought to kill you. And when they don't, people say, man, that, that was a miracle. And, God, you know, that, that was a miracle. I mean, I, I remember here about four or five years ago because I remember seeing the x-rays. on. They had an article on Fox News, man. Some guy got, like, literally, and I don't remember what big city he was in, literally got a Bowie knife stuck in the side of his head. Do you remember seeing that on there? And, I mean, they got these x-rays where there is a knife, like, through this guy's brain. And you're like, whoa. You are, yeah, bold fashion statement. You know, Burning Man, maybe, you know. Um, And not only did they take the thing out of the guy, I mean, I don't know, maybe maybe he, you know, ticked every time a a horn honked or something after that, I don't know. But generally speaking, the thing was, is like, hey man, the guy was okay. Like, not only did he recover and not only did he live, but like he kind of went back about his business. There was another one that was similar to that, Several years ago, where a guy on a construction site fell off of a second-story 
fell off the second story of a construction site and impaled a piece of rebar through his chest cavity, up through the top of his head, and out the top, same deal. Now look, that's amazing stuff, and you go, man, that's a miracle. But it's not enough of a miracle for people to think you're God. As brutal as that is, and then you, you, know, you look at that guy and you're like, man... Probably just ought to shoot him and, and put him out of his misery. And, and you get over and you go, man, that's a miracle. But it's not enough of a miracle for the whole world to decide that means you're the creator. It's because the English is pitiful here. The, the King James Version actually captures this the best. It's still not perfect, but it captures it the best. The King James in Revelation chapter 13, verse 3 reads like this. I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. The problem with the King James, the first part's really pretty good. I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death. The King James blows it on the second. His deadly wound was healed. Okay, deadly is an adjective in the English. It is not an adjective in the Greek. It is a noun. It doesn't mean his deadly wound. It means his womb of death. If you wanted just the raw, and it's pretty chunky, if you wanted the raw, just decoder ring version straight out of the Greek, read like this. And one of heads its as slaughtered to death and wound of death its was healed. And one of heads its slaughtered to death. Guys, what you see here is not a wound that should have killed the Antichrist and didn't. What you see here is a dead Antichrist. If I was a betting man, three days before the war in heaven goes south and Michael throws Satan out. He comes down to you, woe to you on the earth, he comes down in great anger for he knows his time is short. There's only one place to go. There's only one angle, one play to make. The time has come. He's going to give it everything he's got. He's been backed into a corner it's time to put up or shut up. The blow is delivered to one of the heads of the beast. As we've already seen both a political division of the kingdom and a particular king. The wound is healed. You know, Paul, the, the other apostles do it too, but, but Paul particularly leans in Romans chapter 1 upon the resurrection of Christ as proof of His deity. In Romans chapter 1, verses 3-4, through 4, concerning His Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Man, when Paul gets ready to write Romans, his proof text for the deity of Christ is the fact that what proved him to be Christ was after three days in the grave, he rose again. Mimetic. He's a counterfeiter. False resurrection. 
blasphemous counterfeit. The resurrection of this king and his kingdom along with it compels people to marvel. It's the same word that's used of Christ's miracles in places like Matthew chapter 8, verse 27, and Luke chapter 9, verse 43. It causes them to marvel and it causes them to worship the beast as God and to ascribe to him the unique other thanness, the unique holiness that should only belong to God. Or in chapter 13, verse 4, they said, Who is like the beast? And who can fight against him? If we were going to make a summation, taking all the things that have been said about this event in Daniel and all the things that have been said about this event in in the Revelation, we would say the Antichrist, initially the king of Syria, the northern quadrant of the former Greek empire in Daniel 11, will rise to preeminence. And at the height of his rise, he will fall. Upon being expelled from heaven, Satan, the great dragon of old, will indwell the body of the Antichrist recently killed in the battle with Kittim that's recorded in Daniel chapter 11, verse 29 through 35, thus becoming the Antichrist proper. Having indwelled the world leader, Satan will now fully commit his power and authority to this kingdom of men of which he is the physical, political, and spiritual head. Sovereign, priest, and king. All in one. The spectacle of his resurrection, it's really necromancing is what the Old Testament would call it. The spectacle of his resurrection is the cornerstone of his deception. Paul speaks about it when he writes to the Thessalonians in his second letter to them in chapter 2 and verses 9 through 10 when he says the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power. Man, this is everything he's got. And you've got to remember, I have some strategic thinking here. While being the highest order of creation and, 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 and the most powerful created being that has ever existed, the fact of the matter is, is he is a created being and therefore his resources are limited. They may seem limitless to us, but that's just because we play in the shallow end of the pool. Okay, they have a bottom. Unlike the Christ who will destroy him, there is a bottom to this well. And you see Satan act very judiciously with the application of his resources up to this point. And now he's going to throw everything at it that he's got. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Or as Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 24, for false Christs that are trying to prove their deity by a false resurrection, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Guys, a wound that should have killed you but didn't is not sufficient to to lead away the elect if that were possible. False resurrection. If it wasn't for Christ keeping His own, would be. 
Okay. Well, we made it through, through four of them. We'll pick up with the general actions of the Antichrist in chapter 13, verses 5 through 10 next week. Ethan, thanks for taking one for the team this morning, buddy. Will you pray for us?